Welcome back to Inside Asia. I'm your host, Steve Stein. If you hear the acronym ESG bandied about, it's for a reason. The world is waking up to the fact that traditional business practices are no longer enough to meet the needs of the 21st century. ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. Together, they form the foundation for a new set of principles that codify a new way for companies and investors to operate. They also speak to the so-called intangible assets within an organization. That can make them hard to measure, and one thing business executives hate are things that are hard to measure. It seems like every time you look up, some management consultant or business guru is introducing a new concept to supercharge the enterprise. Each new process had its day in the sun and an acronym to match. Remember BPR, Business Process Reengineering? Or how about ERP, Enterprise Resource Planning? And who could forget CRM, Customer Relationship Management? Even the folks at the back office had their three letters. To keep it simple, they called it ABC, Activity-Based Costing. If the mere mention of these past activities bore you to death, or even worse, cause an onset of PTSD, let me offer hope. ESG is different. It has soul. Got your attention now? Then sit back and listen to my conversation with Steve Oaken. He's been a guest on Inside Asia before. In past episodes, we've covered impact investing, U.S. politics, and international trade. Steve has a diversity of talents and interests, but a cornerstone issue for him these days is ESG. He plies his trade by serving as a senior advisor with McClarty Associates and chairing the Global Private Capital Association in Southeast Asia. Before we go there, a word about our sponsor, Quilt AI, a mission-first technology company that helps large organizations use the internet more purposefully. It's looking to reverse fractures in society and generate empathy while helping organizations understand their consumers and beneficiaries much better. They give time and money to causes they care about and in service to people and planet. Inside Asia is pleased to be associated with Quilt AI. For more information, do check them out at quilt.ai. Now, here's my conversation with Steve. Steve Oaken, great to see you. Great to be back, Steve. We've done this a few times. In fact, uh, I was looking back at a database uh, when I first started the podcast. Uh, You were my 16th guest. And at that point in July of 2017, you were the one who introduced to me the idea of ESG. Never seen it anywhere before. And you told me what it was. I thank you for that. And we're here today to talk a little more about it. Um, Start for for those of uh, listeners that I have who don't know what ESG is. What is it and why is it important? Well, ESG is really about a mindset where you think about how a business impacts the environment, how an impa- how a business impacts society, how the way a business governs itself can also impact society. And it, as a business person or as an investor, what you're trying to do is think about how you can take an ESG mindset and change the way a business operates, either through risk reduction or value creation, to make it a better business. And, and that's not a crazy idea. I mean, the idea of reviewing a business based on these types of capabilities, competencies, business models has been around forever. But, but why is everybody so ESG crazed now? Has this term or this idea been around long? Well, the, kind of think about how it's evolved, right? So when, a, when, when businesses were created, 
you know, and if you go into the, you know, like say early 20th century or so, the thought was businesses are about, you know, profit maximization and, and shareholder return. How do we maximize that? And in no other consideration um, was given. And then you kind of had a shift in a mindset where the businesses needed to do that, but you started to take a CSR approach as well, CSR being corporate social responsibility, where businesses need to profit maximize, but they also needed to be good citizens as well, and that would be typically philanthropic in nature. Then you start to approach maybe the, the 70s and 80s, and then there were things where investors, governments, and customers said, we don't want businesses doing certain things. We don't want businesses investing in South Africa when there is an apartheid regime happening. We don't want businesses investing in companies that are involved in pornography because that is bad for society. So then you started to get this exclusionary mindset, which is we're not gonna do certain things, but everything else is kind of okay. We've now evolved to where we have this ESG mindset, which is it's not enough for businesses just to be good citizens philanthropically, not to just do bad things, but affirmatively to try and become more sustainable. Mm -hmm. And you become more sustainable by reducing risk or reducing the harm that you cause, like through pollution, or you could also have value creation. Where can we add benefits to society, such as increasing um, the diversity of our, of our workforce? And, and this current version has been around for about 10 years, but it's only been in the last three or four years that it's really ramped up. What changed? Well, I think part of it is that businesses started to realize that if you have an ESG mindset, if you institutionalize it, you are going to be better at business. You're going to be better, right, at, at, at making money, which is why you're in business to begin with, and that you can do both, you know, do well by doing good, that you there were ways to do this if you took a very practical approach at what are the material things we need to focus on from an ESG perspective. But but many of these companies aren't self-actualized. We should do it because it's good for us and good for society. There are also pressures being brought to bear by customers, by suppliers, by communities, by shareholders, by investors. What, what has changed um, that, uh, that now requires many organizations to be compliant versus advising them to lean in that direction? Well, I mean, I think there are a couple changes. One, and if you want to talk about uh, the pressure that's coming from investors into companies, and it could be, you know, investors in private capital, right, and, in, in, you know, so the, the limited partners into private equity, or it could be the shareholders into publicly traded companies. They're saying, we're going to hold you to a standard of being sustainable, both economically and uh, socially, because we know you can do it. And therefore, we're going to invest in those companies that can do this. You can have a market rate of return and be sustainable at the same time. It requires a shift in mindset. Those businesses which started to do it first, those private equity firms that started to do it first, were then able to attract better talent, 
more capital, and then others are now catching up because they see that this is smart business. Mm. And let's talk about these. Let's, let's bifurcate this a little bit because you do have the large multinationals like Unilever or MasterCard or HP that have gone down this path and, and have deployed this ESG policies and programs for all the reasons you mentioned. But then there's also the large private equity venture capital firms. They're the ones managing money on behalf of others. Um, and therefore, when they go out in search of portfolio investments, uh, they need to make sure that those portfolios are compliant in order to make sure that they can satisfy the demands of their investors. Is that right? And how are, how are those differing then? I mean, what are there any um, nuances between them that we should understand? Okay. At, at, the, at the basic level, no nuances, no difference. A, the material ESG factors for a company are the same whether it's publicly traded or, or privately held. And you start with the mindset first that every business can, can cause harm. Right? How do we minimize, if we eliminate or at least minimize the harm? So if you're a factory, how do you minimize your impact on the environment through greenhouse gas emissions, through your discharge of, of water, making sure you don't contaminate the soil, um, all of those types of things. So there's kind of environmental harm. But if you're an education company, how do you make sure that the kids are safe and that the teachers you're bringing in don't have a history of sexual assault against students, right? I mean, you, you want to prevent that harm uh, from occurring. If you're a, you know, fintech or if you're in, you know, cloud computing, you really need to protect your customer data. So there's data privacy, data security. Those material factors from a, an ESG uh, perspective uh, don't vary if you're a large multinational or a small company, if you're doing business in, in emerging markets or if you're doing business in, in more developed markets, if you're publicly funded or, or privately held. So what you need to do is you need to make sure the management of that company has a understanding of what the material ESG factors are, first and foremost from a risk perspective, but then there's also value creation opportunities on, on ESG as well. Sometimes they go hand in hand. That's it. Mm. To, to what degree are the, the large private equity firms on board with this? Is, is it now, has the dial, uh, has, have we moved past that inflection point? Or there's still lots of uh, organizations sitting on the fence waiting to see whether or not this is a fad? Well, I would say, you know, where, where you, you, where I taught you the term ESG in, in 2017, I learned the term ESG in 2011. Uh, when I joined KKR, my history had always been, you know, public affairs, public affairs being, you know, government relations, public policy, broader stakeholder engagement, uh, media and, and, and communications. And when KKR was creating the position of head of public affairs for Asia, uh, the global head had said to me, um, you're going to have three buckets of responsibility. Public policy is one, communications is two, and ESG is three. And then I quickly Googled ESG because I had never heard of it uh, when, when I started. And that's, you know, and so that was kind of the beginning, right? In, in certainly in the private capital space, you know, you go back 10 years now uh, and, and KKR was the first private equity firm that issued an ESG policy and they, where they codified their ESG policy and, and made it public. And uh, they were the first private equity firm to have issued a citizenship and sustainability report. And I think that was about seven years ago or so. Now you fast forward to today, 
it is gone from a differentiator for a global private equity firm to table stakes. Mm -hmm. You have to do it now as a global uh, private equity firm. More and more you're seeing regional private equity firms that are having ESG policies, processes, and reporting. They're not where the global funds were 10 years ago, but they're, they're, they're starting that journey now. And you're even seeing venture capital funds and a, a fund like OpenSpace, which is headquartered here in Singapore. They have a head of ESG. They have an ESG policy. They do ESG reporting. So it's, it's gone from only the globals to, to venture capital now. Mm. It's one thing to set the standards, the materiality as you refer to it. Is that right? Can you, can you define for us materiality? Well, um, materiality is what has what factor will have the potential for uh, impact from either an environmental, social, or, or governance space, and at the same time have an impact on the company's fina- uh, bottom line, uh, the company's financial performance. When you have both of those things, that is a material ESG factor, and what you want to do. Right? And, and material is material, because if you can get everybody to agree that this is a material factor to the business, well, of course you're going to manage it. You, would not ma- you wouldn't say, oh, yeah, that's material, but I'm not going to manage it. Well, then you're not a good business person. Right? So you've got to get agreement on what's material from an ESG perspective. If, and typically, and the, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board um, is considered you know, one of the, the, the gold standards in terms of a, a framework for ESG globally. SASB says for a typical investment, there's probably 15 to 18 material factors. And those are the ones you focus on. You focus on what's material. So th- these are the things that are essential within the organization or within the investee company or both? It's, well, again, it's, it's material from a uh, impact to society and an impact to the bottom line. So for some companies, right, you know, data privacy, you know, protecting the, the data of your customer, not selling the customer's right. data, being transparent with what you do with that data, that is going to be very material for, for almost any company you know, in, the, in the tech sector. But for a manufacturer, data privacy may not be a material element. Um, environmental impact is going to always be a factor if you're in manufacturing. It is going to be you know, less so if, if you're you know, in cloud computing. I mean, so it, it varies from company to company. So it's relevance. And, and it, it's relevant to the bottom line. Right. And it is my old, my old boss at, at, at KKR you know, said, look, we're only going to save the world at a profit. Mm-hmm. Right? So what we need to do, if we can figure out a way to make that impact to society and be profitable in doing so, um, and it could be either through risk reduction or value creation or both, that's where, you're, that's where business is really going to add uh, to society, right? Government has a role when it comes to addressing societal challenges. You know, religious organizations and, and NGOs and, 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 and charities all have a role, but business is going to really be the driver of, of 
our ability to achieve right the sustainable development goals that, that that the UN has set out. A lot of companies raise their hand, recognize it, acknowledge it, um, but then when it comes to actually driving it through an organization, they either come up short in two ways: either on the front end, where they say, "Well, I'll tweak my communications to make sure the world knows I'm declaring that I understand and I'm compliant." to some degree, or on the back end where they say, let's pick one of those metrics and be able to track, report, uh, and demonstrate that we're doing our best. But that feels more like an accounting function. Well, what about all the stuff in between where you're convincing the organization and you're driving those business practices in such a way where it's almost like breathing? It's not like thinking about it or checking a box or making sure that you're being consistent with your communications plan. What's required really, you know, where the rubber hits the road in order to get things, things, things operating the way it does with any other function within the organization? Look, the way I kind of put it is ESG is a lot easier than you think it is in some ways, and then it's a lot harder than you think it is in, in other ways. And when I work with, with, with private equity firms, right, so if a client comes as a private equity firm, I, I tell them, look, you're, you, if you have raised your second, third, fourth, or fifth fund, and you are a successful investor, you are doing ESG. There is no way you are ignoring ESG and being a successful investor because your businesses would not be profitable. You would not be getting a return on investment. You wouldn't be able to attract uh, new capital or continue to attract your existing capital. So you're already doing it. You're not going to be going and investing in a company that is engaged in bribery and corruption. You're not going to be investing in a company that is going to be you know, knowingly uh, mistreating its workers because they're all, you're, you're going to have fines or violations. You're going to have a tough time attracting a good workforce. You're already looking for those things. You're already managing those things. You're already doing those things. What, the, what, what ESG as a framework enables you to do is have a system in place so that you make sure you get all of those ESG factors each time and something doesn't slip through the cracks. The second thing is it changes your mindset. When you start to think about ESG, you're now looking for new issues that may be coming you know, down the road that aren't here yet. You may, this will enable you to be a better investor, to get ahead of the curve, to see where things are changing, such as a carbon tax, which is inevitably going to come, such as you know, the, the reduction in the use of, of plastics, which is probably uh, going to come. So you'll be thinking differently. So you're already doing it. Getting a policy, a process in place is going to enable you to do it better and to, to, to be on the front foot of new ESG risks and opportunities that are coming. And then when you get that, you're now able to start to quantify the benefits financially and societally. And then you can get into the tracking and then comparing how you're doing to others. That is a hard part. Quantifying the impact of ESG, measuring greenhouse gas emissions, relatively easy. What does having a diverse workforce do for you in particular? Uh, what are the consequences of that? Harder to attribute, but attributable um, to some degree. And then how many you know, cybersecurity incidents did you prevent? Well, how do you know, right, if you have a good cybersecurity policy? And then how do you compare that? Then, then you get to be a little bit more difficult. But we're getting there. The, 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 and now for the elephant in the room. Um, there's, it's one thing to set 
standards and to drive those standards. It's another thing to be able to authenticate and certify that everything that you believe is happening is happening. How far down the value chain does that certification or requirement to certify go? For instance, if you're a private equity firm investing in a large Indonesian-based uh, sustainable palm oil industry, it's one thing to say all of our plantations are certified. It's another thing to verify that that's the case. You've got to go right down to the farmer plantation level. Where and how do we know that things are being done in the way that they're saying that, that people say they are being done? Well, okay, two things. First, ESG is a journey. And it, if you start at that at that level, you're never going to start your journey because it gets to be, as I said, it, where sometimes ESG is too hard. Daunting. It, it, it's Im Or impossible in some way. So, so one, start the journey. Figure out what your material factors are. And if, if in, in, a, in a palm oil example or any example where you're, you're sourcing, do you have a responsible sourcing policy? Um, are you looking, you know, into into your into your your your, your you know your, your value chain? Are you figuring out what level of sourcing is there? So that's one thing, right? Is is understand that's responsible sourcing and start to ask those questions. The second thing that is very uh, that you want to do is partnerships. Right? There are lots of, of, of entities that are very good at looking at sourcing and verifying. Rely upon them. Find who your good partners are. Um, and it could be, you know, WWF or it could be WRI or BSR, any uh, of, of, of these, you know, NGO partners you can have. So rely on those partners. And then those partners are the ones who are going to be working with the, you know, RSPOs, the Roundtable for Sustainable Palm Oils of the World, to make sure that when you have that RSPO certification, you know, on uh, the, the, the candy bar or whatever it is, um, that it means what it says it means, that, that you, you can have assurance that that, that that label is from a sustainable product. But no, you can't expect, you, know, you have to rely, you have to have this ecosystem of ESG and it is out there and we need to continue to, to, to grow that. Yeah, it sounds like there will be or should be a degree of forgiveness. So, you know, if you're doing your best and you can demonstrate you're doing your best, there's a recognition that it's going to take time um, and therefore don't, you know, lose sleep over it, but be aware. That, that there are challenge of, uh, challenges ahead is, is what I'm hearing. Is that right? Well, I think one of the key aspects, and this goes into G, all right, is transparency. Right. You need to be transparent with, with what you're doing. You, you know, you say, here is, here is our ESG policy. Um, here is our process. Here is what we have considered to be material factors um, for the business. Again, this is privately held, publicly traded, doesn't matter. Right? These are the material factors that we consider. And here is what we are doing. And then here is what we're going to continue to, to improve upon on our journey. So long as you are transparent and, and open and have those commitments, then... I really don't see where you have a lot of contention. Where you get into the issue is where the business does not 
uh, have transparency when it comes to all of its material factors. So if you're electric vehicles and you talk about all the great things you're doing in terms of how much greenhouse gas emissions um, that have been reduced and um, what you've done in terms of you know how you are selling the product and how you're working with others and what your workforce is and all great things. But if you don't talk about your sourcing, if you don't talk about where that cobalt is coming from, if you're not looking into um, whether there is child labor or you know forced labor in your supply chain to get the cobalt that goes into your batteries, you are not being transparent. Mm. And that's where you get into trouble. And if, so long as you're transparent and you know what your material factors are and you're reporting on them, you can avoid the claims of greenwashing. So even if you don't have direct control, this is the supplier dependence, the idea that you do what you can do to persuade, you make sure that they're transparent with you so that you're making the right decisions, and you let those suppliers know that I am going to pay the consequences if something comes out, and you, by virtue of this, will pay the consequences if it's basically reported back to you. So let's get on board together. Well, if you are really taking it to the next level, what you really could do is if you find a supplier who is not living up to the standards that you have, that your investors have, that your employees have, that your customers have, work with that supplier. Say, look, let's help you try and get to global best practices. So if you're sourcing um, or investing in a, in a palm oil company that isn't certified be it you know through rspo or ispo or mspo you know the the country certifications or the or the global one um say if we invest in you can can we work with you to get certified because now you're improving right the 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 you're, you're improving the environmental impact and the social impact because now you're going to help the the small shareholder farmers become more efficient more productive and you're going to save the environment so you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to say, unless you meet my standard, I'm going to take you off. That's really kind of that where you get to the next level, which is we're going to work with our suppliers or we're going to work with our uh, employees to get them uh, to become more sustainable. You know, it sounds like a lot of work. And so many traditional companies or, or Vespa's firms tend to do things internally with the resources they have. You, you are interestingly and rightly pointing out that there is an opportunity to partner. And you mentioned earlier the NGOs. Um, in some way, this is almost a recasting of the relationship between the MNC and the NGO or the, the investment group because you're asking them to do something that perhaps they're not familiar with, but it ultimately favors their interests, right? By saying, provide us insights, understanding, on-the-ground information, and in turn, we will invest in you to make sure you can continue to certify and feed us the information we need. It's almost becoming on-the-ground research firms for them, as opposed to recipients of philanthropic gifts. It's all about partnership, and, and there are and there are governments that want to partner. There are investors that want to partner. There are NGOs that want to partner, and because that's the only way we're going to achieve the sustainable development goals mm -hmm. is is having everybody in this in, in this ecosystem uh, working together. It's, it's happening. Um, and I think that is only going to accelerate more and more and that those people in business who take a partnership approach to ESG are going to be much more successful. Mm. How are things stacking up here in Asia, Steve, vis-a-vis uh, -vis Europe or North America? Well, I mean, the in terms of both 
private capital and in, in terms of, of uh, you know, you know, publicly traded companies, businesses, it, it is a little bit further behind. Some of it is because uh, you're forced to do it in, in a country that has stringent environmental laws and stringent labor laws and takes enforcement cases, whereas where you have some governments that don't focus on that so much. So you have, uh, you, you have, you can look at it, the way I look at it is more glass half full. You have much more opportunity to have impact uh, through ESG in the emerging economies, in, in growth markets than you do in the, in the established ones. And so it is now why you're starting to see so much money coming in, for example, into Southeast Asia into venture capital, mm -hmm. where these venture capital firms are focusing uh, you know, on technology. And you know, right now, everybody basically just adds tech to a sector, right? So we have health tech and ag tech and fintech yeah. and ed tech, right? And it's, oh, we, you know, we're, we're in the tech space, therefore we're an impact investment, yeah. you know? No, you're not. You yeah. could be. Yeah. But if you're going to be going into ed tech and fintech and what you're starting to see is you have these development finance institutions like the IFC, which really hadn't invested in venture before, and now they're doing that, and they're bringing in that development mindset and that ESG mindset, and saying if you're going to be doing, uh, if you're going to be investing our development money into these private companies, we want to make sure that they are protecting customer data, that they are being um, energy efficient. Um, where are their, um, where's, where's their energy coming from to power all of the data centers that they need? So you're starting to ask all these questions. You, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sensing a business opportunity, a gap in the market for early stage companies in the service space who might do uh, sustainability certification or application of a technology to make sure fish farms are being managed uh, effectively and efficiently. You, it, it just seems to me like that gap could be a benefit that has a whole new layer of business opportunity for which private equity and venture capital can get involved. Oh, it's it, yeah, no, you are not the only one to recognize that. Right? It is it is <laughs> it's not an original idea. <laughs> it, it it's it's early, but it's not it's not original, right? You're seeing so many of 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 in fact you're seeing, you know, a lot of private equity firms now investing uh, in ESG and in, in sustainability firms. You're seeing tech really enable all of this. You're seeing, you know, partnerships with a lot more NGOs focusing on that. So yeah, no, this is a, a We've always said, you know, and I've been in the sustainability space roughly for a decade now. And every year we would always say, you know, this is the year ESG is going to become mainstream. And then it doesn't. And then we say, no, this is the year ESG is going to become mainstream. And it doesn't. And then we say, oh, this is the year of the tipping point. And it's not. I actually do think we're at the tipping point now. <laughs> it's a credibility issue here. But I'm, I'm kind of with you on this one, though. 2021 feels right. And it feels a lot more right than 2017 did and, or, or 2011. But there were, there were huge, huge first mover advantage. Um, but it's now, as they say, it's gone from differentiating yourself uh, to being table stakes. You yeah. have to do it. Right, right. Steve, as always, an absolute pleasure. Thanks for bringing us up to date on this. Uh, let's keep tracking and come back together again. And, and maybe we'll, we'll do this four years from now and we'll see where we are with the SG. Yeah, 2030's the year, I think. Yeah, okay. Good to see you. You too. That was my conversation with Steve Oaken. ESG guru and Southeast Asia point man for both McClarty Associates and the Global Private Capital Association. 
As suggested at the outset of this discussion, ESG has soul. Okay, maybe not the toe-tapping variety, but as I hope our conversation made clear, there is something afoot with ESG that goes beyond the stodgy, albeit important, catalog of core business processes. Indeed, the mistake that many executives are making is by placing ESG alongside the acronyms that dictate key steps and measurements. I'm not saying measurement is a bad thing, I'm just saying there's a danger in putting the cart before the horse. Customizing an ESG framework to the unique needs of an organization is the first step. Steve uses the term materiality to refer to what aspects of ESG are most relevant to the firm and its overall performance. As a side note, it's an unfortunate word because it's an accounting term, and like I said, ESG is so much more than that. Determining materiality in an ESG context means understanding stakeholder issues and concerns, exploring and defining the purpose of the organization, and incorporating the views and perspective of its leaders and its employees. If that sounds like a lot of work, it is. But as Steve points out, it's really no longer an option. For any business to survive in the 21st century, it will have to deliver more than a product or a service. It will need to participate in the health and wellness of people and planet. I'm sure that when hearing this, there are no shortage of C-suite executives thinking, I didn't sign up for this, yet here we are. Listen closely and you can hear the echo of a similar movement 20 years ago. It was called digital transformation, and the idea as an enterprise-wide initiative was roundly rejected in the beginning. It took a wave of startups and disruptors to show large multinationals that in order to remain relevant and vibrant, they had to make the transition, and many did. Now it's ESG's turn. When aligned with corporate purpose, an ESG framework underpins a strategic plan capable of transforming an organization. For companies starting out, don't think of this as a series of what not to do, but rather a chance to do the right thing. When viewed through the lens of opportunity, the conversation coalesces around what can be done. Engage employees at all levels, and inspiration and innovation creeps in. All of a sudden, people are engaged. They start coming up with ideas. ESG isn't drudgery, it's imagination. Okay, maybe I'm getting carried away, but you get the picture. The point is this. The time has come to begin doing things differently. Failure to do so means environmental disaster, social decomposition, and a governance nightmare. Still don't have time to do the work and make a change? Then heed the words of Steve Oaken. ESG has gone from a way of differentiating yourself to table stakes. There is no choice. You have to do it. So what are you waiting for? Thanks for joining us here on Inside Asia. If you like what you hear, please share this episode and any of our other 180 or more conversation with friends and colleagues. There's a smorgasbord of programs waiting for you on the new website. Both our episode and newsletter archives are searchable by keyword or topics, covering everything from corporate purpose to sustainability, future economy, future tech, health and science, and geopolitics. We would like to think there's something there for everyone. Subscribe to our newsletter by leaving your name and email address, and each week you'll receive a summary of that week's episode, links to notable insights and articles, and reference to other conversations on similar subjects. Visit us at www.insideasiapodcast.com. And as always, we thank you for listening.